welcome back. This is the Root of Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panetta. As always, we're downtown Salem, Oregon, in studio, home to the Groundwork Leadership Institute. We're an institute that we founded to raise the tide of leaders in our community. We believe in being intentional in the development and cultivation of leadership, and so we did something about it. We also believe in the term of being an institute where we have shared knowledge. So this podcast is a crucial part in sharing the different information and knowledge that we come across and the different leaders that we engage with and sharing that with our community and beyond that. So we put this podcast together as a way to not only house the information and experiences that we learn from the different leaders that go through the Institute, but also from outside guests and different community leaders and thought leaders and their perspectives that they can provide. So thank you for tuning in. Today we have a special guest, uh, actually a family member of mine, clinical social worker in Southern Utah, works in the prison systems, just an incredible individual. I love speaking with him about different concepts, deep concepts, and I believe that he can provide a really special lens, uh, a unique lens on our principles around soil, seeds, and weeds. So we're going to have him join us. Uh, I'll let him introduce himself further. Again, thank you for joining us today. Hope you enjoy today's episode. All right. So Jason's just joined us here in studio. Uh, again, we're happy to have him here. He, uh, We're related, as I mentioned. He he married my, my sister, one of my three uh, brother-in-laws, all great uh, men and, and fun to have part of the family. But Jason and I have always had this unique connection because uh, we 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 find interest in similar things, not just for fun. I mean, we both love sports and, and being active together, but we also, uh, you know, when it comes to different philosophies or theories or academically, we've had interest in very similar things. I studied peace building and conflict, and I'm studying psychology right now. And he, of course, he's, you know, um, spent his entire academic career, undergraduate and graduate in uh, in social work and and clinical social work, and he practices uh, therapy now. So, but that's too much for for me giving an intro. Jason, you want to introduce yourself? Sure, Chris. Thanks so much for for those kind words. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I I work in southwestern Utah in a, a facility that's um, house houses incarcerated individuals, um, both uh, locally, you know, county and uh, state inmates, and um, provide substance abuse and mental health uh, related treatment. And I think, you know, it's been a, it's been a pretty amazing journey um, having that opportunity because I think my vision of, of working in, in this, you know, generally speaking in clinical social work, you know, I, I envisioned more of a, you know, a, a different kind of thing. And you're sitting down one-on-one with someone like, not as if they were going to lay down on a, you know, on a couch on this kind of typical, the way we envision it, but, um, you know, this general practice and here I am in a, in a jail and it's, it's been so different. So that brings a whole host of challenges, as you can imagine, being in a jail, um, you know, a lot of red tape and, and just a lot of challenges to try to work with individuals who, um, oftentimes, uh, reach rock, rock bottom, most of them. Right. Yeah. I think that's kind of the, you know, the, the phrase that we typically use and, and the phrase that they'll use at times. Um, but, uh, you know, great work can still be done there despite some of the, you know, the hurdles that are, that are posed. Yeah. And you're the only clinician there, right? Right now? Uh, Yes. I'm the only one that's providing my specific program. Um, they do have other mental health related, uh, practitioners in there, but they're kind of in there just to almost ensure the, uh, the well-being, if you will, of the inmates, whereas mine's like kind of this program that comes into the jail and I I do work there on a consistent basis, but, um, it's, it's kind of this little separate entity. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. And I want to ask you more about, you know, what got you into this, um, and, and why it's important to you, but I, you know, for, for listeners to just frame things a little bit more, uh, the reason why I wanted to get Jason on here was to get, to provide kind of a, you know, a deeper, this kind of a clinical standpoint on our framework that we use here, our rooted framework around soil, seeds, and weeds that we do with lead that we, you know, we, we run this Institute with leaders and, and our community, you know, but I'm, I'm really curious to have this lens of what are the implications at this very interpersonal kind of mental health level, at, especially with, with folks that many of us can't relate to because 
most of us haven't been in their circumstances. For example, the, the individuals that you work with, you know, the incarcerated that have ultimately hit rock bottom for most of them. And I think that the implications of this rooted content and the, the concepts and the theories therein have, you know, strong correlation to, to your work. And I think that your insights and this conversation can can just add to our institute and this collection of knowledge that we're trying to have. And I, I'm sure this won't be the first time that we, we dive into the rooted content at this level, but I think this starts the conversation of of the implications it can have, at, you know, at, at this kind of interpersonal, well, actually really personal mental health level for, for some folks. And our, our content isn't by any means... Um, you know, used by clinicians anywhere, but I, st- I feel like there's some, some correlation that's worth talking about. So, so go ahead and, and share with, share with us, you know, why you got into this. Obviously I know a little bit of that being your family member, but just share, share with us why this is important to you, why you do it, you know, whatever you're comfortable sharing and, and you know, what, what the, what are the challenges that you face? What, what makes it hard, but also what makes it worth it every, every day when you go at it? Yeah. Um, oh, I think Chris, it's a, it's a variety of reasons. And I don't think you find many clinicians out there who haven't had something, um, it's personal know, for what I've, what, what I've known. It's, right. it's personal for, for clinicians that do your work. Yeah. I think there's almost a, you know, a running joke that, you know, if, if anybody needs a therapist, it, it is the therapist, <laughs> not necessarily just because of some kind of some like secondhand trauma, if you will, yeah. but because of what, uh, what they've experienced early on and somehow influenced their, uh, Mm. that, that path to practice therapy. But, um, I think for me, uh, some of the reasons that stick out, um, one very specific is that, uh, mental health and substance use has hit home to me with my mother, um, uh, being an only child with, with my single mother, she, um, she just had a, you know, a tough time in, in early life experiences that, made things really difficult by the time I was born, which for her was at the age of 41. And, um, I think experiencing that, you know, firsthand and not being able to make a lot of sense of it, you know, being really frustrated, uh, as a, as a teenager, even, and even prior to that, you know, I had a lot of, a lot of anger and, um, and I didn't, you know, I just, I lacked so much understanding. And so I'd say, that was one influential um, factor that's kind of led me uh, towards this path and also spending some time outside of the country um, and seeing some of the social, you know, challenges and problems that exist. And um, as I, as I spent time outside of, out of our country of, I've seen so many individuals who lack resources, which is a, you know, big aspect of social work, you know, trying to link people to resources um, and just, you know, not having a, you know, not having a path to, to for wellness when, when things have been brought over their, you know, heads and to, to know, um, you know, to know, uh, how can I say this? Um, you know, essentially it's not their fault as it is, as it's not for, for many people, right. Yeah, um, it's just what they, the cards they were dealt, the cards they as were we'll dealt. talk about later. It's just the soil that they, you know, were almost born into some of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. And, and between, you know, between those two things and, and how, uh, you know, I've looked at my own mental health and, and, and wellness over the years uh, as I've transitioned from a teenager to early adult life to to now in my 30s. You know, um, I think uh, it, it really, you know, early on, I was like, you know, this would make a lot of sense because there, there's meaning here. There's a meaning here because I was studying business. And and for me, at just one point, I realized it wasn't for me. And it made a lot of sense at, at that juncture, kind of in my early to, to mid twenties to, you know, do something very different and, and it was to go this path. And, and so here I am, you know, some years later. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate you sharing, you know, why, you know, why it's important to you and, and why you do it. And of course I, I know, you know, some of that history that you have and, you know, your family dynamics and, and I know a bit off topic, but, you know, sort of related, I'm sure it was a bit of a, a culture shock joining our family where, you know, there's, there's five of us siblings. We're all married. There's tons of kids and you growing up as an only child. I know you had cousins and things, but I know it probably wasn't always easy, uh, adapting to our crazy family dynamics, but perhaps that probably adds to your, your lens of how you, you know, you practice now, um, you know, knowing different ends of the, the spectrum, um, kids that grew up like, like you and, and people that have had similar lifestyles as you, as well as, you know, what my sister, your wife and our family has, has also, um, 
you know, contributed and we've had our fair share of problems as, fa- as a family that I'm, you know, you've, you've been aware of as well. So mm-hmm. I'm sure it's just added to your lens, um, and how you go about doing your practice. Um, can you speak a little more to, you know, what are, what are some of the challenges that you face on a daily basis? Um, or, you know, just a weekly basis doing what you do and, and also what makes it worth it? I mean, what, one of those moments that you're just glad that you're, you're doing this where it feels, you know, there's a sense of fulfillment there where you feel like you're really helping. Yeah. So speaking to maybe more specifically to some of the challenges, I mean, um, pre pre COVID-19, I was uh, primarily doing group therapy because it's, it's, you know, for lack of a better, you know, phrase, it's kind of more bang for your buck, right? Like, you know, you can work and it's, it's been shown to be equally as effective as individual, Mm. you know, therapy. And so that's what I was doing primarily before, uh, you know, before March or so. And I think speaking of the challenge, you know, you get a group of, uh, I work with both males and females and, you know, getting, getting a group together in a jail and in any kind of setting where there's, uh, incarceration, there's just a lot of skepticism, Mm -hmm. right? There's, it's not an environment where people feel safe. You know what I mean? And so, I think, you know, being able to do my best and our best along with them to cultivate, if you will, kind of a therapeutic community has been a big challenge. Hmm. And uh, because for them, you know, in some other facilities, uh, people that are involved in any kind of program will reside, will live together within like yeah. their their unit or block. And for us, they go to their, res- they return to their respective housing units mm-hmm. where other people who are not in the program. And so they don't, you know, play by the same rules, if you will, right? Because yeah. within our program, it's like, you know, there is, you know, there's anonymity, right? There's it, what's uh-huh. said there stays there, so it's, yeah. right? Um, and so I think just trying to provide a safe space so that yeah. they can be real, right? So that they can dig down and address some of those things in vivo, so to speak, right? So like in real time, yeah. um, it, it's just been a big, big challenge, I'd say. Yeah, safety is, you know, I think crucial and all accords and us working with leaders, we talk about that quite a bit and and leaders have to create a safe space. And, and, you know, the, your, the level you're working at is it to the extreme. I mean, it, the safety that we're talking about is, is it's same, it's the same, but it's, it's different. And from a conflict lens that I, you know, that I bring, it's very similar too. it's hard to get any sort of conflict to progress to a resolution, to a solution, or even to transformation without safety. And I think, with mental health and social emotional kind of awareness and education on the rise, we're learning more and more about the importance of creating safe spaces um, in all facets of our life. You know, I mean, I have to often ask myself, do my, you know, do my kids feel safe enough? Uh, Not physically, it's not like they're in physical danger, but do they emotionally feel safe enough to be themselves and to talk to me about things and they're little now, but I'm sure it's going to become more and more important as they get older. And even with my wife, does my wife feel safe to bring certain things up with me? Am I, or am I too focused on myself that I'm not providing that sort of safety for her to feel? You know, I have to ask those questions myself personally, but certainly professionally, certainly as a practitioner. Um, and I'm, unfortunately, I'm probably a lot more purposeful as a professional to make safe spaces for people because it's part of my job than Mm -hmm. I am at home. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that whole concept of safety, I think, is it, we can never it can never be considered too much. I think it's we need to be considering it more and more. And we're seeing now with the climate in our country and the racial tension and different things that are going on that I mean, even physical safety with COVID nineteen and and other um, dynamics around race. I mean, the safety is at a is at a pretty all time low and, and and as it pertains to recent years. And it's not as if the safety wasn't lacking before, but now everybody knows about it, especially when it comes to the race conversation. There's been plenty of people that haven't felt safe. Now, you know, it's at the, it's at the headlines. So our country as a whole and our communities really need to, to be um, more purposeful and intentional in creating safe spaces. And that's at, uh, that's at this high level. And you're talking about this interpersonal level to help people just be able to make some progress um, in their social, emotional, and mental well-being, um, let alone you know the outside world that that they're no longer a part of. You know where there's <laughs> there's not safety here for many either. So mm-hmm. I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, as we've talked about, you know, you and I've had conversations in the past. As I was developing 
this framework, this rooted framework, and even in the development phases of this this uh, uh, groundwork institute, I remember you know a couple of years ago even bringing some manuscripts of of some of the content and having you just read them because I always appreciate your opinion. From those moments to the conversation we just had before we got on, you know, started recording, um, I'm really curious. And this is a big question, so we can maybe take it piece by piece and dissect it slowly. But I'm curious on what the implications are for our uh, of the rooted content, you know, this idea around soil, seeds, and weeds. And for those of you that, you know, we're not going to be able to explain everything in detail, so you'd have to go back and listen to some of our early episodes where we dissect what so what we mean by soil seeds and weeds and you know it's an analogy we're talking about the earth but we use it metaphorically to explain different concepts but i'm curious on what the implications are of that framework to the work that you do i mean what are the implications and where are things connected and how important are these ideas even at this very intimate personal level working with people that have literally you know hit rock bottom mhm well, I did have a thought, Chris, that, um, you know, I, I kind of saw a correlation to some degree that, you know, my practice pre-COVID, right, was working in these groups. And in order for a group process to go uh, as planned or to be efficacious, um, a big aspect of that is, right, that there um, there's openness within the group, that there's uh, there's progress, if you will, with the group, like, and, yeah. and things are happening within the group. It's not necessarily just pulling from stuff from previous days and talking about talking about it then, but rather like, let's get into the nitty gritty right now. Let, let's like have conflict right now. Let's, let's play this out. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, whether with smaller or to some degree, maybe some larger organizations, just like in group therapy, you know, when, when people see, as you can imagine some, uh, some effort towards openness, when there's some transparency and authenticity, you know, that that's very, uh, that's almost like a catalyst, right. For others. It oh, just, yeah. it just really opens that door and, mm-hmm. That's not, you know, you don't typically think about an organization, you know, or, you know, getting together and trying to improve together almost, you don't really compare it to like a group therapy setting. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm, I know some individuals who, you know, run their teams almost in a way that's like group therapy where it's like, yeah. they have like team meetings each week and mm-hmm. it's like, they, they, they do their best to practice this, you know, authenticity and, and bring stuff that is taking place away from work uh-huh. within their personal lives to work just so that there's this sense of humanity that they yeah. that they can, you know, they can grow together as because work, you know, they're spending, you know, a third of their day, right at work. Yeah. It's a big deal. And so. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it, <laughs> from therapy in prisons to, you know, running a team meeting, I think the same principle applies. Things get so much better. We don't, it's not like we want people to spill their guts out on the table, sure. you know, of their all their life's problems. It's not what we're talking about, but just glimpses of vulnerability and authenticity bring, for example, a meeting to a whole other level. It makes it less transactional and leads it to being more transformational. Uh, you know, I had a friend that once said, you know, every interaction is an opportunity to build or destroy a relationship. And we can't build relationships in any way with one another and start to un- discover ourselves a little more if we're not authentic and, and real. And as you just explained that moment, you know, that those moments where you're just waiting for somebody to be authentic as a catalyst or, you know, real as a catalyst. Uh, I've had similar experiences sitting, staring at two people that have been experiencing high conflict and I'm, me- I'm the mediator and they open up to me and they're authentic to me offline one-on-one, but when they're in the same room with one another, when they really need to be authentic and a little bit vulnerable, some you know it ha- they have the hardest time and I'm just sitting there inside the whole time just say it just say it you know you know that you know it's gonna help but you know it's hard that's the part of vulnerability that we're afraid of is we feel like what if the other person doesn't change or what if uh, you know what if they judge me or or you know what if I I'm sending a message that I'm letting them off the hook I mean there's so many fears that come into play and some of them are legitimate fears but for the most part this sort of vulnerability that we're talking about can have can be this catalyst. And so when you're in these group settings, you know, it's really this personal progression that they need to make. But I really love that you're talking about how progress, that you haven't seen any lack of progress as a group, as you have one-on-ones, and perhaps even more as a group. Because again, that that ability to have others and the humanity in the room just increases, I think, the that sense of authenticity. So Yeah, I did. Yeah, it, there's no, uh, you know, at first I 
I thought to myself, there's no way group therapy can be as effective as individual therapy, but you know, that's wrong. That's not what the research shows. And so, uh, yeah, there's definitely something to be said about the principles and the practices that can exist there and, and how that may look outside of quote unquote group therapy, right. That, that can be, that can be brought to the workplace and, and in organizations and families and, you know, all that. Yeah. And you know, in the, in the soil framework, we talk about, you know, ultimately we're talking about soil, we're talking about people, but when we talk about cultivating it, you know, we talk about how people, you know, the first part is they need to be willing to break up the soil themselves. So they need to be willing to actually change themselves first. I think we're in a, a world where it's really easy to blame others or other things about our, our problems. And even when they're, when they're blame worthy, they're, the justification is even stronger for us because we have a tangible reason of why we can point our finger and blame. Uh, but we're regardless, we blame a lot and we don't want to take responsibility. We don't want to change ourselves. And, and if we do, we're waiting for somebody else to change first. Mm-hmm. So that's the first level of our, of how we cultivate soil and how we go through this content with the leaders that we work with. We first have to be accountable and change ourselves. The second level is fertilizing the soil, we call it, and it's, um, you know, seeing people. And you and I were just having a conversation about how, and I think this relates to what you just said, is and why group settings are so much more successful. Well, studies show that they're just as or if not more successful because the second level is seeing people, fertilizing the soil, seeing others, seeing people. And we talked, you and I spoke about how, you know, when I, the way I see myself is directly intrinsically connected to how I see others. You know, for example, if I see somebody as worse than me, I obviously have to see myself as better <laughs> than them. Or if I see somebody as better than me, like they're just, why can't I be as good as so-and-so? Or why can't I just have my life together like other people? I'm obviously seeing myself as less than them. So there's this intrinsic connection of the way that I see myself is reflective of how I see others. And so I, I, you know, there's some unique correlation there of, you know, in these groups of maybe why it may or may not be more successful, but, and even when it's one-on-one therapy that you do, I'm I'm sure that that concept still comes, comes to play of where some of your work, although you might not use this language, is really helping one, people want to change first, but then see perhaps see the world and the others around them and themselves in a whole different light. Yeah. Yeah. I think speaking to that kind of top layer of, uh, of the soil to, to use your framework there, Chris, a word or a, a phrase often used within our setting is uh, victimization, mm. right? And um, when individuals practice that, when they are looking outside of themselves as to what's happened to them, right? Yeah. And, and it makes a lot of sense, like you said, you know, to to speak to that and to, to try to validate, you know, where someone's been and where they're at currently. Yeah. Um, because so many times people are pointing the finger, you know, and are telling them, you know, what they think that person should do, you know, to be able to validate someone really, you know, really can set the stage for greater vulnerability for accountability. And, um, but the, you know, the bottom line I think is that there just is no growth in victimization, right? When we are, when we are looking outside of us to, to put the blame, to to say, you know, why has this happened to me? You know, this happened to me when I was nine years old and this should have never happened to me. And, and, you know, this is why, right. And just kind of saying, you know, this is why, just because we have the why doesn't mean we, um, you know, we'll be better. And so many people that I work with that that's, a frequent thing. It's like, they want to understand why, like, why did this happen to me? And just because, you know, we have the why doesn't mean that's going to make us better. That doesn't mean, you know, and so, uh, to be able to step away from that as, as horrible as things have been for an individual, right. And, and as, as much sense as it make that a person has led a life in a certain way after their experiences, um, you know, you have to, you have to look inward, right. And say, okay, Hey, if I want to grow from this, it's like, what, what's within my power? And going yeah. back in the past isn't gonna, you know, do anything to change that. Yeah. Now, I when you when you talk about this, um, you know, this victimization role that we take on, and granted, a lot of we're, some of us are real victims, and 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 sure. when you work, you know, in social work, you probably see that a lot. You know, there's a difference between me playing the victim when I don't want to do the dishes, <laughs> right? Like, oh, my wife left me the dishes. That's me really playing up that role. Versus somebody that's actually been a victim of something, sure. but the the same principle applies that you're talking about is when I'm a victim and either way, and I take that up on me as my only paradigm, it's hard to make any progress. 
And, you know, it's, it really is. It shuts off the door to progress. And in conflict, the way that I talk about it with people, and I've heard others talk about it, is, uh, uh, you know, if, if you see a person A and person B, the victim role is really taken up, taken on when person A does something to person B. So if I'm B and you're A, you do something to me, right? Vic, I'm a victim of it. And whether it's a real tangible thing that's worthy for me to actually be called a victim or I'm just making it up in my head, you know, like mm-hmm. the dishes. Either way, that that's that's what happens. That's how the victimhood um, and that role is taken upon by one. And and the way that I've explained it explained it before is of why it's so limiting. And I want to bring this up because you said it's hard to progress when you're, you know, when when we're victimizing ourselves. Um, and the way that we that I've talked about it before is there's three options that you have when you are a victim, right? And if I again, if I'm person B and you're person A, the first option that I have is I try to change person A, right? Like that's that's one of my go-to options. I just try to change you, right? Uh, or the the source of which is it's coming from, right? I try to change that, and that never works. I can't just change other people, right? I can't. I I might be able to force certain behaviors, but I definitely cannot ultimately change others. Um, so that that goes nowhere usually. And then the second option is I try to avoid person A, you know, I just try to leave person A and that, and in cases where I'm a real victim and I'm being hurt, you know, emotionally, physically, I certainly should try to, I need to avoid that, right? It's part of it. But, but there's no escaping my, my victimhood that I'm taking up on myself uh, with just avoiding person A or source A. And so that's the other option. And the third was get rid of A, right? If I can't if I can't change A, I can't avoid A. I just need to get rid of A. So I need to do something, you know, to just get rid of them. And you might even see that at a very literal sense a lot of times. Those both all three of those ways um with the the folks that you work with, right? They they maybe they go to the extremes to change somebody or they go to the extremes to avoid somebody, they go to the extremes to get rid of somebody. Um and 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 all of those, I believe, are connected and to this victimization uh, role that we can take on. And there's a scale too. There's a spectrum of the severity, and I want to I want to emphasize that. I'm not saying that I'm not trying to say it's you know that real victims are not validated here. They certainly are. Like you said, we need to validate that people have baggage and they have things that happen to them that are real and painful. Um, but at some point. And you know this at an intimate level with the people you work with, they ha- they have to let go of some of that, right? I mean, isn't that some of your work that you get to is getting to those deepest levels of the soil to help them move past those things or at least know how to cope with it um, in a new way? Yeah, yeah, I think, um, and it's it's kind of this uh, um, you know this paradox, right? Or it's counterintuitive to this this thought of letting go, which is really is kind of you know, rather than accepting it or sorry, rather than avoiding it, it's, it's going towards it, right. Rather it's, it's, um, it's trying to be there with it because so many people like, you know, that that second thing that you mentioned avoidance is just so woven into the fabric of many people's lives, you know, in a variety of levels, you know, they, they, they avoid, you know, we avoid, um, uh, we run, we run, right? We want to get away because we're uncomfortable, right? Yeah. We're uncomfortable. And, um, you know, whether you see, uh, you know, whether you see, you know, a parent and a child and a, you know, and a, and a child freaking out in, in a, in a supermarket or something. Um, and the, the parent is, you know, they, they don't really want at times, I'm sure they're uncomfortable with their, their child being in a rough spot, but it's like more so than that, it's like, they're uncomfortable with how it's it makes them feel and how like you know the they perception pre- that they- right right like that must mean i'm a bad parent if my mm-hmm. child's freaking out everyone's staring at me yeah so and and they try to avoid that right they're like okay like well you know all right we'll, we'll buy it we'll, we'll buy yeah. the toy we'll buy yeah. the toy we'll get you the chocolate milk we'll get you whatever you want like let's just you know let's get away from this um and you know i, I was just mentioning and and this is an really influential as to why you know i chose this path i was uh you know speaking with you know your children chris uh and uh, there seemed to be some avoidance uh, on, on the part of a, of one of the young children, you know, about about eating something. Uh-huh. And I said, to, I said to them, I said, "Hey, you know, it seems like you're trying to avoid right now." And I just want to let you know that makes a lot of sense to me. And I have a PhD in avoidance, <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, we all do. Uh, and uh, so yeah, that's a that is a big deal. And when we can when we can acknowledge that, when we can take a step back and see that for what it is, 
and, and practice something. And maybe that gets more into the seeds, right. Of this whole framework. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we really put ourselves in a position to, to, to make changes. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think that that concept of avoidance is, is key and something that we talk quite a bit about in conflict as well, because they experience similar emotions, you know, and conflict, not just between people, but the inner conflict that we face. I mean, we want to run from it, fight it or flight, right? Fight or flight. Mm -hmm. But both are a form of fear and a form of trying to avoid, you know, having to deal with, deal with, uh, the ramification of whatever's happened. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I want to go back to something you said, um, you know, because I said learning to let go, and that's probably not the right term. And you corrected me. You said more than learning to let go of things, it's really learning to be with it. You know, how to, how am I, how can, how can I be with these problems in a, in a better way, you know? And maybe we have to let go of our perspective on it. And that's mm -hmm. what we need to let go of. Um, but we ultimately just need to learn to be with it. And, Personally, some of the things that, you know, that I've received help with, uh, you know, in therapy and younger um, with addiction and things, uh, that was something that I had to learn was, Chris, you can't just run from this. You need to just learn how to be with it <laughs> and just be with it in a better way, in a healthy mm -hmm. way and accept, accept that it's a part of your life that you just need to learn to be with in a healthy way that doesn't hurt you and doesn't hurt people around you. And, uh, I mean, that was that perspective alone, you know, that was many years ago was very transformative to me. Um, because there's many times now where I'm, ex I'm in conflict, you know, whether it's a petty conflict with my kids or my wife or whomever. And I, that same thing comes back is you got to learn how to be with this right now, even though it's uncomfortable. And I, similar to what you said earlier, there's a joke about, you know, therapists needing therapy you know, working in conflict, there's a similar joke of we're not exempt from it. In fact, we probably experience conflict more, which is why we're okay talking about it with other people because we know it all too well. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm no expert in that, but I'm always thinking about that, I, that idea of just being with it. You know, can you just be with this aspect of your, of your life? If it's hurting you, obviously try to get rid of it. It's hurting others. Try to get, get away or deal with it in a new way. But you can't mentally, you can't just forget it mentally. You can't just let it go. It's always going to be there. And so learning to be with it is, is a, you know, that's a whole other rabbit hole that we could go down. But I think that's something worth, worth highlighting of what you said is that that idea of being with something is so, so crucial and on a professional level, level and a leadership level, very, very similar, similar, uh, line of thinking. I think a lot of leaders are become leaders or, you know, get that title of a leader because they were just, they're really good at something. And then they become a leader and they have all these new demands and fires to put out and con weeds that they have to deal with and decisions they have to make and pressures that they never had before. And the avoidance kicks in. I just want to avoid them. I just want to not have to deal with them. But knowing that you have to, you, that's when you develop all sorts of, you know, stress and anxiety and learning to just be with them and being okay with sometimes being uncomfortable and, and not being okay. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's not learned overnight and it's not something that any leader is prepared for and people aren't prepared for that. Um, and so it's something we have to work through and think through, I think together as, as human beings, um, which is why I think we need a lot more of these resources that you offer and, and, and even frameworks or language to just dissect and understand what's going on. Because it's not always as simple as black and white. It's not always as, you know, this or that. It's, there's a lot in between, a lot of complexity to, to us as, as, as a human species. That's for sure. So you mentioned seeds. I, talk, talk to us a little bit about, you know, some of the, I'm sure some of the tools that you provide, um, some of the coping mechanisms that you provide, a, a lot of them probably can be seen as a seed, like, hey, look, do this, try this and see how it helps. Talk a little bit about that and the implications of first helping somebody ultimately cultivate their own soil first for that seed to actually work. Because uh, if it was as easy as just offering the seed, then they wouldn't need you. They would just say, hey, do this, you know, uh, and it'll fix all your problems. Um, so can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I'm definitely of the belief uh, that in the snippet of life that I have with these individuals that 
whatever we can do during that interim period of incarceration, because, you know, my goal is that they're stepping out of jail in a different fashion than how they walked into there. Hmm. And it's not, uh, you know, I've learned to not not hold the bar too high, if that makes sense, uh, because it's a big challenge. You know, these are adults, so they've been shaped by, you know, they're not, and not to say it's any easier for children, um, though they're just, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of layers there, right, Mm -hmm. as the years have gone on. And so, you know, being able to work with individuals so that, you know, they're in a good, in in a good position to step out and and continue on. And I think, uh, you know, trying to teach someone to fish, right, rather than give them fish is what I kind of hear you saying. Yeah. Um, And I think some of the big things that I, that I like to focus on, you know, I kind of bring, I kind of have this mesh of, this kind of, uh, you know, one therapy is acceptance and commitment therapy or mindfulness that's really focused on, you know, trying to trying to be like we had already talked about just a little bit ago, right? Trying to be with some of that uncomfortable mm-hmm. stuff, you know. Just breaking up that soil, yeah. Yeah, breaking up that soil and and so much can be accomplished while, while we're there. And also this cognitive behavioral therapy that's really focused on the way like our cognitions are influencing our emotions and behaviors. Yeah. Um, and, and really trying to set an example, if you will, as I'm working with these individuals and their communication and their relationships, because a a large factor to recidivism is, you know, familial relationships is these interpersonal relationships, right? With friends or with romantic partners. Yeah. And so being able to use our interactions as, you know, I compare it to going into the gym, you know, like we're, we're, we're going into the gym right now Mm -hmm. and it's going to be tough. And so whether I'm asking you difficult questions, whether, you know, I see something and, and I'm going to like kind of dig in a little bit, not, not to the degree that, you know, I'm pushing someone over the edge, but I'm hoping that as we have those tough conversations, um, that they'll start to build a tolerance to that discomfort, right? That, yeah. that, that be a reminder to them that that will be start to be woven into their, you know, neural circuitry that, hey, when something, when they're triggered, so to speak, that, okay, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can have this tough conversation rather than let's agree to disagree, yeah. you know, um, because there's not going to be growth there, right? There's, mm-hmm. um, and so I think those are... Uh, those are some of the big things I try to focus on and I try to emphasize exactly what it is we're doing because for some of them, it kind of can just seem like, oh, this is, yeah, like this was tough, but it, I think it's really important to identify exactly like what's happening yeah. because for these people, they, they lack, you know, they lack the awareness. So not unlike other people, but the, there is a general lack of awareness at times. It's like, what is this thing that's happening to me? Yeah. I just like, I just want to get away. Like they can't mm-hmm. put a name to it. They can't identify. And so I, we try to, really say, Hey, this, this seems to be what's happening right now. Um, yeah. and so let's, uh, let's, uh, you know, we can do this and, and here we are. And this is what's been accomplished so far. Yeah. And just like what I mentioned, we need more of the language and, and education and understanding of how to identify these, you know, these things that are going on, you know, cognitively in our, in our brains and, you know, even within our hearts. I mean, how can mm-hmm. we, how can we put a language to, to the way that we feel and the thoughts that we're having? Because sometimes we just don't know. Yes. Um, yeah. So that, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. And, you know, when you're talking about what I'm hearing, first of all, everything that you're saying, as I'm trying to see it through this lens of soil, I mean, you're really explaining cultivating soil, right? People got to be willing to break it up first. You know, their soil's perhaps been hardened. Um, and anybody knows if you see a plot of really hard soil, there's no chance you're going to be able to plant a garden there or plant anything there. Um, things might naturally pop up, which are usually weeds and they end up taking over, uh, you know, all of the soil, which I want to get to in a second of the weeds that you, you know, that you're helping people encounter and how you start to get to the root of those. But, but I mean, you can't, you can't plant in a, in, in hard soil. And so everything I'm hearing you saying is really, um, starting with breaking it up and digging, you know, deeper and, and getting to those deeper, deeper levels. Um, I once had a, well, still a friend of mine, but he's a, he's a leader, um, uh, in Kansas city, uh, and within the police department, you know, one of, I think there's maybe one person higher than him, which is, would be the chief of police, you know, in the PD and his name's Chip. And he once said that I was on a call with him. This was several years ago, but he once said, uh, you know, Chris, people don't like change, but they hate the way things are. (laughs) And I think about that all the time. And I thought of that as you were talking because, 
we really don't like a lot of change, but we at this in the same breath we hate the way things are, um, and that is a a very interesting um, uh, dynamic to be in. Uh, it's a predicament. It's a paradox. I mean, you know, I can't. I don't want to change, but I don't like the way my life is. I don't like the way things are going, but I I really am scared of change, and so you know, being willing to be uncomfortable, like we've mentioned several times, being uncomfortable, I think is crucial. And you might like too, I know we've talked about this before, but in our in our third level of, of cultivating soil in our content, like in our handbook, in our curriculum, you know, we talk about deeply seeing others and deeply seeing others as opposed to seeing others is, is essentially there's this new component of seeing another as beloved, seeing them as worthy of love. Um, and we talk about three different sorry, four, excuse me, we talk about four different attributes that people that have learned to deeply see have. And this, we didn't think of these, we kind of put new language to them, but we leaned into the Aspen Institute. I don't know if you've heard of the Aspen Institute, but they work all over and they do all a number of things. Um, I encourage you to, you know, anybody to, to look up the Aspen Institute, but they, I can't remember what they called these individuals, but they did, they basically did their own little study on human beings and they didn't use the language of deeply seeing, but they, they essentially were talking about human beings that are able to really care and love other people. And they watched these individuals. They just met them along their work, you know, as they consulted and as they traveled and they would always run into people and they started to find similar features and, and characteristics and, and, and thoughts that these people would have. And they started, they, they essentially put a language to it. And so we, we use those same four things and we talk about people that deeply see do the following. And the first thing that they do is they're rooted in. And what we mean by they're rooted in is that they know why they exist. Like they have a deeper meaning to why they live. They, they have something that they want to live for and they care deeply about it. And it's their meaning. It's what drives them. It's what wakes them up in the morning. That's one thing that people that deeply see do. The next thing that they do is they're willing and they dare to explore social space. So that goes back to what we've been saying about being willing to, to be comfortable, being uncomfortable. They're willing to go outside of themselves or what they're used to or what they're accustomed to, to just understand others and understand other social dynamics and other social spaces. They dare to explore it. So it's not like they're just have this overall overwhelming willingness to say, I'm going to go do this. Like they're daring themselves. Like Chris, try to understand Chris, Go there and 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 try to understand why people are this way or why a certain culture is that way. And it's just this willingness, this hard, daring willingness to do that. And then the third is being emotionally transparent. And that doesn't necessarily mean uh, wear your emotions on your sleeve, but it means to be honest with what holds you back as a person emotionally and doing something about it. Um, you know, what what holds me back? Uh, in my relationships as 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 a professional as a as an employee as a colleague as a leader but also in my family as a husband as a father as a brother you know a uh, son and being transparent with myself of what's holding me back in those relationships and then doing something about it that's the third trait and then the fourth trait is is my favorite and it's also not easy to do but it's using your suffering well all of us suffer to some degree and usually we allow the suffering to break us and it breaks us and, and we fall apart and some people fall much further and harder than others, but suffering breaks us. And so it's using it well turns the suffering from breaking us to breaking us open. And there's a difference there, right? A difference between breaking and breaking open. Because when I'm breaking open, there's this idea that I'm opening up to others, right? Um, versus I'm just breaking down. Uh, there's kind of this bright sadness to it. You know, when we suffer there, when we suffer and use it well, it's, this is bright sadness to how we let it impact us and what we do in the future. Um, and those four things, uh, you know, we, we basically allocate is the people that deeply see and leaders that are able to deeply see on a consistent basis, they, know, they have those four qualities, mm -hmm. right? They're rooted in, they know why they exist, they have meaning, and, and they, they believe in it strongly. They're dare, they dare to explore social space, they are emotionally transparent, and they use their suffering well. Um, and uh, I think those are crucial. And those are not easy, by the way. Uh, those are not easy um, to be able to do those four things. But I, I wanted to share that. I know we've probably talked about that before, but 
I mean, what are some of those implications you think from those four steps to the work that you do? You know, that first one at where I worked previous, which um, was at a treatment center, at an outpatient treatment center, which by and large, working with a very similar population with people that had experience with the criminal justice system, whether for, you know, your basic, uh, you know, paraphernalia and possession charges or, you know, just they've been involved with the criminal justice mm-hmm. system. And one of the favorite treatment groups there was titled Meaning and Purpose. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, it was framed around the the literature of Viktor Frankl, who wrote the, you know, wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, that's a topic that maybe in a roundabout way it's brought up, but oftentimes it's not really, you know, emphasized enough that, you know, like what are our values? Are our values our own? Are they somebody else's? You know, if we adopted them through the the way we've been brought up or through, you know, the way society um, is. But um, I think, you know, bringing bringing that perspective uh, or bringing that to deliver that kind of treatment, if you will, just gets really gets people really excited because it's like, okay, yeah, like it would make sense that I, if I focus on these things, this is what can get me up in the morning rather than trying to think about, you know, all the things that, that stand in their way. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a huge driving force. And and when they can prioritize those things, when they can, um, have open and honest conversations revolving around them, Mm -hmm. um, then there seems to be, you know, amazing things that, that happen. And, uh, and I've seen it firsthand that, you know, people do make progress, uh, at least to a, a good degree, um, when that is uh, something that's emphasized. And uh, I think that's kind of connected to, to, you know, some of the other things that you mentioned, right, that are willing to be transparent and, and willing to do something about it. Because so many people, they, they go day to day and maybe they have some established values, right? Or they have some established meaning in life, but then they, they fall short, right? Yeah. And they're going to experience this inner conflict. They're going to experience, you know, this, uh, this anxiety, this angst or, or depression about what was not, you know, achieved, so to speak. Yeah. And they don't necessarily speak to that, right? Because then that, that brings about some degree of accountability. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of just, you know, they, they go from day to day. And when something's not met, you know, they don't, they're not open about it because if they were to be, then it'd be like, okay, I'm putting this on the table. I guess I better do something now, right? They'd mm-hmm. rather just try to, they think it's making it easy, but it's counterintuitive because it's really just bogging them down. It's slowing them down. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I think it's it's definitely connected in, in, my, uh, in my sphere of, of practice. Yeah. And meaning, you know, it's, it's, it's so, it's so important, but there's a reason why so many people struggle and, and, you know, from our context are unable to always deeply see because it's hard to be rooted into things when, again, when we disappoint ourselves, you know, we have, we, we want a sense of meaning, but we feel like it's out of reach for us because we're just not up to par. Or, you know, we, you see this often with a lot of people, maybe their sense of meaning happens when they become a parent. But what if you lose your child? Maybe your sense of meaning happens when you you get in a close relationship with a partner, but you, you know, that relationship ends I and mean, you, you, you hit these moments of rock bottom where your purpose that you had, your sense of meaning is now gone, you know, uh, and, or, you know, you were let down by somebody else, life circumstances let you down or you let yourself down. And so now this idea of being rooted in and having meaning, um, is gone. And that's why sometimes it's hard because Finding meaning in in being a parent, you know, you being a parent, you're, I know you're a parent, I'm a parent. That's like one of the greatest sense of meaning I've ever felt, right? But again, things happen. And some of the people that you work with, they probably had some of the extreme things happen. And so they're now lost. Maybe they had meaning once before, but it's gone. So it's this hard, it's like this, you know, this, this I don't know what the right word, it's not a fine line, it's not a slippery slope, but it's something like that where you can have a really strong sense of meaning, but what happens when there's disappointment or when something doesn't go our way? And so the way we talk about it with leaders is that your sense of meaning has to be so deep that it doesn't matter how your life changes, what you're doing for work, whether you're a, a, a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, uh, you know, a, a janitor, a bus driver. I mean, there's a myriad of jobs that we could have. It doesn't matter what you're doing. That your meaning is the same, no matter what. 
Um, and a lot of leaders find their meaning in their organization, right? Like, I love what my organization is trying to achieve. But what happens when there's some change in dynamics in your organization? What happens when you, you know, you change jobs? And we shouldn't go around life. We shouldn't have to, I believe, going around life trying to find a new sense of meaning because that dynamics changed. And so that's why I think even that first step is hard for people is where do we find such a deep sense of meaning? Some of us find it religiously, but a lot of people are let down religiously. You know, their faith fails them to some degree. And, and so that I don't want to under oversimplify that idea of being rooted in because it is, it's really hard, but I think it's, uh, it's worth it. And it's certainly worth it as a, as a, uh, as a leader. But as individuals, we need to be rooted into something and and that will continue to evolve. Uh, but it makes every step that comes after that that we talked about, I think, much easier. And it sounds like you're, you know, you're speaking the same way as you're working with people that have lost a lot um, and have lost their sense of meaning. You know, when we when we lose our sense of meaning, our sense of identity, you know, that life doesn't feel for even sometimes worth getting up um, and in the morning and I think I shared this story with you before, but when I was working at the Arbinger Institute, I went to this treatment center slash rehabilitation center, sort of, not really. Um, it was voluntary, but you had to be accepted. It was kind of this very, um, you know, strict process of getting even accepted. So people that were there, it's because they really wanted to be there, but not everybody could get in. But all these folks were incarcerated and addicted to, you know, multiple substances and had experienced the rock bottom on multiple occasions. And we would go there just to go over some outward mindset, you know, Arbinger curriculum on Sundays during their group share out sessions. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I heard a lot of stories there that are similar to things that you probably fit, you know, you hear on a day-to-day basis, but a lot of these folks have lost the sense of meaning and they're now they're, they're just developing this new sense of meaning. And I, what my, one of my favorite things, cause I went there for a couple months straight. So I got to see some people that were brand new, you know, like the greenies, you know, the, the brand new students versus the ones that had been there for a couple of months and just the growth that they would have and the sense of meaning that they would find and the purpose in their life just completely changed. It was really cool to see that because I wasn't there in between all in the details. I just would come Sunday to Sunday and you did see the growth in somebody in one week. Uh, but there was this gentleman that was there and big guy, and I'll explain him, you know, for people can picture him, but probably like six, four, just really tall guy, really well built, just muscular, you know, tattooed from head to toe, um, you know, had been involved in gangs, been in prison, in and out of prison several times. Um, and he got up and shared, this was his first week. So he had one full week there and he said, you know, he stood up in front of the group and he said, this week, you know, when I first started, you know, I, even though I wanted to be here, I, I didn't at the same time. I hated it. I hated all these rules. Uh, I hate, I, you know, I just had the hardest time and then he started to get emotional. He started to get teary and, 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 and cry. And he said, for, since I was a kid, I've learned to pray, you know, like I was taught how to pray when I was a kid. And the way I was taught how to pray was you address God and then you tell him you're thankful for things and you ask for things. And then, you know, you, you close your prayer in the Lord's name. And he said, that's how I was taught to pray. But for the last 15 years, he said, I haven't been able to pray, not because I don't know how, but because I haven't had anything to be thankful for. Um, and people have told me, well, just be thankful for life. And he said openly, he said, I, I feel like I've wanted to take my life so many times. Or why would I be thankful for my life? And he said, because of I'm not thankful for anything and I feel like I'm worthless. Why would I ask for any blessings? Why would I ask for things from God? So he said, I've always struggled with prayer and I haven't prayed in a long time. But he said, last night I tried it again. I tried to pray. And surprisingly, I found myself having an entire list of things that I was thankful for. And uh, the first thing, you know, with tears rolling down his face, he pointed to one of the, if you could say, senior level people, you know, participants in the program had been there for a while. His name was Victor. Also, you know, former gang member, tattooed head to toe. Um, he pointed at Victor and he said, you were the first thing that I prayed. I was thankful for this week. And with barely being able to talk, being able to talk with tears coming down, he just said, I don't know why, but you've been an angel to me this week. 
And, uh, and then he listed all these other things he's thankful for. And, you know, after he, after he, uh, shared, you know, later Victor shared and Victor shared his whole perspective on things and, and how Victor, uh, you know, how he was beginning to find meaning in his life and, and that being there for, for those couple of months has helped him realize what was really important. And, and both of what they said led to everybody else in the room, you know, that their meaning, uh, they didn't know, but their meaning was around them the whole entire time. And it was the people that they were surrounded by in the moment. And they, those Victor might not always be part of his life, but other people are going to be part of his life. And I learned that day that I should have some sense of meaning that's personal to me and, and perhaps intrinsic. But I learned something very powerful about meaning that day that the most powerful forms of meaning, like being a father, like being a husband, like being a brother of friend, that they're extri- they're extrinsic. You know that my sense of meaning gets so much stronger um, when it's connected to others. And as leaders, I think that's crucial. Your meaning needs to be connected to others. Otherwise, you know how how are people going to want to follow you? But that was just a you know powerful lesson I'll I'll never forget as that. Uh, man shared, you know, that story and then how he's been finding meaning. I want to round us off the last few minutes talking about weeds. You know, weeds we talk about in our framework as being the challenges, the problems, the conflict, especially that we deal with internally and externally. And as leaders, conflict can be so rampant as, you know, in a previous episode, when I first talk about weeds, you'll hear me use phrases like putting fires out, you know, if you if you explain your life and as a leader it's constantly having to put out fires or you're drowning, it's probably because your soil is so full of weeds that you just can't function. And that's not that's not rare, so you know that's very normal. Uh, but that's what weeds are, and and it really weeds are a problem of our soil. It's a problem of our soil, and so it takes us full circle. When we need to get rid of weeds, we actually need to be cultivating our soil and getting to those deepest levels because the worst weeds to pull are the ones that are rooted at the very deepest of levels. The easy weeds are the little ones that you can barely pull and the root comes out and they're easy and you know that that's that's when you want to address them. But the ones that are big, been there for a long time, they got deep roots and their roots are connected to other roots of other weeds and it's just this nasty interweb of of weeds. Um and I wanted I really wanted your insight on this because at least from my understanding, the folks that you probably work with have have a lot of weeds in their life, have experienced a lot of conflict, have experienced a lot of challenges, have experienced a lot of problems. And uh, I think that your perspective on, on this would be one of value. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as uh, as people come, unfortunately, in and out of the, out of jail, out of prison, whether, whether the weeds that were left unpulled, right, so to speak, are still there as they step out or new weeds that pop up, you know, weeds are kind of inevitable uh, in, oh, in yeah. life. Inevitable. Right? And so, and, and having a, a consistent practice and not to say like, it needs to be something that's like, you know, every hour, every day that you need to be getting down, getting your hands dirty and pulling these out. But you know, it, it doesn't look like avoidance. That's for sure. Right. We've already established yeah. that, but being able to get down there and get dirty and you know, call it getting dirty, call it, you know, getting into the gym and, and being able to do something proactively to address being them, intentional. being intentional about that, right. Is, uh, you know, of, of just such great value because, um, otherwise it's, you know, our, our, what, whatever we have cultivated, right. Whatever we have put in, whatever we've had to, you know, it's going to take away from what we can reap. Yeah. Um, and so it is an ongoing process if i understand you right chris right you know it's all these things are connected this whole you know the soil the seeds the weeds it's all kind of an ongoing practice uh, especially once you've started to dive in a little ways it's it's an ongoing thing you can't really ever put it down right yeah you can't put it down and so i think there's a misconception that you know, if we were to, if we're to get down there and start to pull the weeds in that, it's not going to result in what we want, right? It's going to make it harder. It's going to make, it's going to take us to a deeper, darker place. Yeah. Um, but that is the, that's the fallacy that exists for so many people that. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. And uh, I think I shared with you this quote that written by Joseph Campbell, um, who 
who said that, who says the cave that we fear to enter holds the treasure we seek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so being able to, you know, to address those, those weeds and in a way that's hopefully that's effective with, you know, whether it's with a professional, whether it's, you know, with a trusted individual, you know, being able to get down there and get real and be like, Hey, like, okay, how do I pull this out? You know, what's going to be the most effective way to do this and, and, and doing it right. I think putting our foot forward, there's, there's, we can't under, understate that enough, you know, actually trying because so many people are going to naturally want to avoid because it's difficult because it's mm-hmm. challenging. At least th- those deeper things, right? Like you mentioned, there's there's weeds that exist a little bit higher that are towards the surface that we can pick out easily. Mm-hmm. But the things that are going to influence us in a great degree and really keep us from that treasure, so to speak, right, yeah. are going to be lying deep. And so when we get down there and we go we make efforts towards something, you know, again, whether in a in a personal with you know, someone personal or someone professionally, you know, we're going to see, you know, good things are going to come. And I, I honestly believe that, uh, but it is a matter of, of getting dirty, you know, and being yeah. willing, practicing that willingness mm-hmm. towards, uh, towards change. Yeah. You got to get, you got to get out there and weed. We're stewards, you know, something we, we talk about with our leaders is we're stewards of the soil. Um, every individual out there is stewards of their own soil, right? But we're steward as leaders. We're stewards of the soil in our organization, and to some degree, we're stewards of the soil in our community. And nothing will change in our organization or our community if we aren't willing to get our hands dirty. And as you say that, you know, it brings me back to memories as a child of my mother, who you know very well, right? She's mother to you, uh, in laws uh, as well. But she, uh, she every Saturday, she wanted to have us all weed. And, you know, my mom was out there with the little knee pad, you know, on her knees, pulling the weeds all over our yard. And we had a pretty big, good sized yard, but front yard, backyard, and I hated it. And I had the similar mentality as you're talking about. I just wanted to avoid it. Um, and I didn't appreciate that if you just let them sit, they're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and uh, it's really hard to get out and no amount of Roundup spray or weed whacking and that was my style. I'm just going to weed whack, uh, is going to get them out. Uh, but I, I loved her example, uh, of getting down on her hands and knees and pulling out the weeds, sweating. You know, I'd go, I'd, I'd go next to her and she'd be sweating and huffing and puffing and, and, but she'd be in there. She'd be in the soil, just, you know, digging those weeds out and have a huge barrel bucket of, of those weeds. Um, and that's a good example, a literal example of gardening and soil, but that's a great example, even metaphorically to me, of what it means to be a steward of our soil uh, and being responsible of our soil uh, is that the weeds aren't going to take themselves out. We got to do it, especially those ones with really deep roots. Um, so I appreciate that lens. For closing, you know, what, given that, you know, the Rooted Leadership Podcast is connected to the Groundwork Leadership Institute, what would be your message to leaders? you know, like uh, experienced seasoned leader to fresh leader out of the gates? What would be advice that you would have from your perspective, you know, your story and your expertise or your background um, to a leader? You know, what would you tell? And that's a big question. And I apologize but for that. But, you know, what would, what would be your, if you had a minute with them, two minutes with them and you had all their attention, what would you say? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, for someone that, you know, works below a leader, um, you know, they really want to, you know, whether they want to be seen or they want to want to be able to work with people that, you know, hold, uh, hold, hold, hold leadership above them in a sense that, you know, they see what they have and they want that too. Right. Yeah. And so to be able to, you know, work on someone's level, one thing I liked a little ways back, I was watching some kind of sports clip and it showed, um, it showed an owner of an NBA basketball team, um, run out on the floor with a towel and wipe up some sweat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, ho- hopefully, you know, it's not for a, pol- a publicity stunt. Right. But, um, th- this idea that like they were willing to get down, right. And get mm-hmm. dirty and like into t- on the lowest level of someone that's yeah. just wiping up sweat. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I think when, when you have in an organization, someone that's willing to get down there and work with other people rather than just kind of, and, and for sure there's, I mean, you can only do so much, right? As mm-hmm. a leader, you know, you, you're in a different role, but uh, when time is taken to be down there to connect with others, you know, like you'd mentioned earlier, you talked about connection. Um, and, and in my world, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. Absolutely. And so uh, when, when I think when employees, when uh, of an organization of a, 
you know, of a community group, you know, they, when they see that, when they, when they see someone willing to get down there with them and, and t- to connect with them, uh, there's, there's just so much value. And I think it just really can only, um, perpetuate the, the vision and the goals that any leader would have for their organization. Yeah. I love that. Uh, I'm, I'm smiling because the last interview I did for another episode, I asked a very similar question to that individual and they gave a very similar answer to you. And I thought of the same quote and I'll share it again. But uh, a leader in the community told me this. He said, uh, if you're too big for a small job, then you're too small for a big job. Mm. <laughs> and I thought of that when you, you shared, you know, that owner of an NBA team running out to wipe up, um, you know, the sweat on a, on a court people with a job to do that. But if he feels that he's too big for that, you know, then he's probably too small for the big stuff. Um, so that's some great advice, uh, for any, any leader or anybody that's thinking about leadership or wants to become an actual leader with the title or just those that will never be a leader and, and are just around others and have the opportunity to be an influence and a positive image of, of leadership. I think that that, that is a very timeless, uh, principle right there. Well, we got to close it up, but I, I sure um, appreciate you sharing your your perspective and your lens on things. I think this greatly contributes to to our institute and our gathering of knowledge because uh, there's so much more to this at deep, you know, cognitive mental levels than simply some development, some training and development. I mean, this I think reaches to the the deepest parts of our heart and and our brains. This content around soil seeds and weeds. Um, and I appreciate you providing your perspective on the work that you do. Um, I, it's been, it's been a joy, you know, you know, I love you as, as a family member and as a brother, but, um, also as a friend and, you know, just a fellow, um, thinker. Um, and I appreciate those things about you. So I'm, I'm grateful that you were on today. Thank you. Chris, thanks. Uh, it's been a pleasure to, to be, uh, alongside you today and, to to work in this, in this cause, you know, whether for, for leaders uh, seeking to grow or to develop more leadership or just the, you know, the common individual that's trying to create wellness in their life. I think this is a, a topic worth discussing and, and, and rediscussing over and over again as we, uh, you know, try to, to try to be better each and every day. Yeah. And I would like to note, you know, Jason very well could have shared very in many embarrassing stories about me because he's seen me grow from from boy to man. So he's he's uh, he's definitely seen the worst parts of me. So I appreciate him, uh, you know, keeping those to himself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, you know, uh, to sum it up, uh, it's been a it's been a good good episode. Um, thank you for all of you that are tuning in again. This is the Rooted Leadership Podcast. Our guest today was Jason Davey. This is Chris Panetta, your host. Until next time, take care and be safe.